This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, the coldest case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Good morning. Jane Pauley is off today. I'm Dr. John LaPook, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. Special and unusual as well. That's because I'm here in my role as a doctor as well as a broadcast journalist. Together this morning, we'll be looking at cancer, at its impact on patients and families, and most importantly, at research that offers hope of someday reaching a world beyond cancer. I'll be reporting on advances in immunotherapy, teaching the body to fight off cancer more effectively. And among the other issues we'll be exploring, the dramatic steps some women are taking after breast cancer surgery. As Erin Moriarty will be telling us, it's a matter of choice. I didn't choose to go flat. It chose me. Meet women who are breaking the silence and the rules when it comes to dealing with breast cancer. Instead of reconstructive surgery, they are embracing their scars. I love my body more than I ever have before. My body is good enough. Ahead on Sunday morning, what it means to go flat. A string of cancer cases near a polluted area. Is that cause and effect or just a random occurrence? Turns out, cancer clusters are hard to prove, as Anna Werner discovered. Is there something in the water in one New Hampshire community? Would you even walk in that stream right now? 
Knowing what you know? With my boots on. Searching for the cause of a cancer cluster and separating the facts from the fear. Ahead on Sunday morning. Cheryl Crow is a singer with a cancer message informed by personal experience. This morning, she shares it with Rita Braver. Today, Cheryl Crow is about to release a new album and delighting in her role as a mom. But in 2006, uh, you're young, and suddenly they're telling you you've got breast cancer. It's like one of those scenes in a movie where all of a sudden it's like, everything's swirling. I'm going to bring you into the exam room. Ahead on Sunday morning, it's, Cheryl Crow and the, the value of early detection. What, if anything, can we do in our own day-to-day -day lives to possibly hold cancer at bay? Martha Teichner has some food for thought. How many times have you had cancer? Five times. Along the way, Chef Eric Levine became a believer. The relationship of food to health and wellness, it's massive. So your relationship with what you put in your grocery cart matters. Broccoli, kale, collards. From carrots to cabbage. Can you eat your way to a cancer-free life? Later on Sunday morning. All kinds of promising cancer treatments are on the horizon. Susan Spencer will be showing us a few of them throughout the morning. What do death stalker scorpions and Great Danes have in common? They're both helping cancer doctors find new ways of treatment. I think this will potentially be the biggest improvement in cancer surgery maybe in 50 years. That's saying a lot. New cancer treatments may be just on the horizon. And this is the dog here. And it this Sunday morning. Exactly the same. It I mean, sure does. Those stories and more are just ahead. To begin... They look like the legs of a crab sort of dug underneath the sand. The Emperor of Maladies. To play it, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Cancer has plagued humankind from our very beginnings. Our timeline comes from Jane Pauley. When life began, so did cancer. Prehistoric animals have cancer. In humans, you can find signs of cancer in ancient specimens. Physician and scientist Siddharth Mukherjee calls cancer the emperor of all maladies in his Pulitzer Prize-winning history of the disease. Around 400 BC, Hippocrates, the Greek physician known as the father of medicine, is said to have first given it a name, Carkinos. Why was it chosen? Why that word? So the word comes from crab, um, and there was something about tumors as they sent their fingers or fingerlings into the body. They look like the legs of a crab sort of dug underneath the sand. But the earliest reference to cancer can be found about a thousand years earlier, here on this ancient Egyptian papyrus. As for treatment, it says, there is none. In fact, it's not until the arrival of anesthesia in the mid-19th century that surgery became a viable option. 
I mean, who would have thought you could open up a human body, take out an ovary that may have been involved with cancer, and sew that human being up again, and they would come back to life. This was an, an amazing advancement. How many labs are there around the world doing cancer research? Well, I would say hundreds. I mean, this building itself... Mukherjee, who conducts research and treats patients at New York's Columbia University Medical Center, says by the beginning of the 20th century, X-ray technology would give rise to the very earliest form of radiation treatment. And the use of toxic chemicals to kill cancer cells, what's commonly called chemotherapy, was a 1940s development. The dream was to invent a chemical that would kill the cancer cell but spare the normal cell. The problem is that cancers evolve out of normal cells. They are very close cousins. This woman has cancer of the cervix. Still, given that potential therapies were often as fearsome as the disease itself, a cancer diagnosis came to be cloaked in secrecy, even shame. When my mother was surviving uh, uh -huh. cancer, it was l literally unspeakable. Yeah. What changed that? You couldn't shove it under the carpet anymore. We saw our children dying from it. We saw our parents dying from it. It had to be a public word because otherwise we couldn't have a conversation. How can there be a war on something you can't name? Which brings us to 1971, when President Richard Nixon did, in fact, declare war on cancer. I sent a message to the Congress the first of this year, which provided for a national commitment for the conquest of cancer. The war on cancer grew out of a particular optimism around cancer in the late 1960s, early 1970s. Remember, human beings had just walked on the moon. Why don't we cure cancer in 10 years? It was thought very doable. It turns out that optimism was premature. Key was the realization that a patient's genes could, in effect, be calling the shots. What tells a cell to stop growing or start growing in the first place. The idea that sitting at the center of the puzzle was genes, that was a huge leap because all of a sudden you had a framework to understand cancer. Once researchers began to understand cancer's mechanism, more clues started to fall into place. And the Human Genome Project, completed in 2003, led to development of still more treatments, among them individually targeted immunotherapy techniques. And where are we in the timeline or the arc? The problem remains, how do you target, how do you kill the cancer cell while sparing normal cells? That was a puzzle in 1920, it was a puzzle in 1970, it's a puzzle in 2017. You have more tools now. Many, many more tools. The immunotherapies Jane spoke of a moment ago are in the very earliest stages of development. Even so, the effort to unlock the secret within the human immune system is already offering hope to patients for whom traditional treatments have fallen short. 12-year-old Ezzy Pineda will tell you what happened to her seems like a miracle. And you're feeling how? Feeling great. I feel like I could do anything. Back when she was just nine, feeling weak and dizzy, she was taken to a hospital on Long Island where doctors gave her a diagnosis she barely understood, leukemia. So I'm like, am I going to die? Am I going to live? Am, am I going to be able to do the stuff I did before? 
98% of children with this form of cancer respond well to chemotherapy, so her doctors started there. But after four brutal rounds, Ezzy's cancer was getting worse. It was very scary. And a natural reaction is to think, why me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, what did I do bad so that God could give me this punishment? Desperate and out of options, Ezzy had one last chance. She was enrolled in a clinical trial at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in Manhattan for an experimental treatment called CAR-T. How's everything? Good. How are you feeling today? Good. After six weeks, Dr. Kevin Curran, the pediatric oncologist who treats Ezzy, couldn't find a single leukemia cell. Not one. And what did you think? I, I thought this worked. In a patient who basically 10 years ago would have been told, there's nothing we can do. Yes. Ezzy is healthy, just a little puffy from steroids, because of a promising new frontier in the war on cancer, immunotherapy, using a patient's own immune system to find and kill cancer cells. One of the biggest challenges in fighting cancer has been that cancer cells find ways of becoming invisible to the body's defenses, and the immune system can't kill what it can't see. So doctors, in essence, taught Ezzy's immune system to see. They took billions of her white blood cells, cells that normally are good at destroying invaders like bacteria and viruses, but bad at fighting cancer, and turned them into cancer killers. We can take those cells out of the body, genetically modify them, teach them how to fight cancer, and then infuse them back into the patient. It's like they're bloodhounds and you give them the scent of the cancer. Exactly. And then you say, go. Traditional therapies like chemo and radiation often damage healthy tissue along with cancer cells. The hope is immunotherapy will be more targeted and better at sparing normal tissue. But there have been serious side effects, even death. And once we knew it could work, we've been working round the clock. Dr. Steven Rosenberg has been a pioneer in the field of immunotherapy at the National Cancer Institute for more than four decades. In 1984, he was the first doctor to cure a dying patient using her own immune system. So these are immune cells that we would But he'll have. also be the first to tell you that, all these years later, immunotherapy is still in its infancy. We've gotten to the point now where I think we understand why the patients who are successfully treated experience tumor regression. And based on that knowledge, I think we're going to see dramatic progress uh, in, the, in the next few years to come. But most patients don't have years to wait. Lungs are somewhat compromised. Yeah. Like 29-year-old Barack Govensoiler, who has a sarcoma, a cancer in the connective tissue near his spine that has spread to his lungs. Now, normal lung would be black. These are all abnormal tumors, every one of these. He has many hundreds of different tumors that are in his lung. Barack has already been through two rounds of chemotherapy and multiple surgeries. He came to us, as do all of our patients, having exhausted what modern medicine can offer. And our goal is not to practice today's medicine, but to create the medicine of tomorrow. And that, Rosenberg believes, would be immunotherapy. Just as was done with Ezzy, Barack's white blood cells were taught in the lab to recognize his specific cancer type. A month later, Barack gets back his juiced-up cells, 90 billion of them put into battle. You can just imagine those cells chewing up the tumor when they go in there. Definitely feeling very hopeful. 
I mean, you draw the lottery and to actually be part of this trial is just an incredible opportunity in itself. Now he's waiting to see if those cells did their job. The highly personalized treatment that patients like Barack and Ezzy received is still only available in clinical trials. But there's another type of immunotherapy that's available now in hospitals across the country. FDA-approved drugs called checkpoint inhibitors are being used to fight certain types of cancers of the kidney, bladder, lungs, and more, with especially positive results for melanoma. Good. While effective treatment for widespread or metastatic cancer remains elusive, doctors are hopeful they're at least on the right path. Right now in the spectrum of cancer treatment, what percentage can be addressed by immunotherapy? If you look at all cancer patients, perhaps 10% can be helped by immunotherapy today, but it's getting better every day. Last Tuesday, Barack returned to the National Cancer Institute for a first checkup since receiving his cell transfusion five weeks earlier. I just have that comfort in terms of, like, I've done everything I can. Barack, good to see you. <laughs> just hoping that we get results that we're seeking in this. So we've gone over the x-rays very carefully. We compared them to the x-rays <clears throat> that you had before we started the treatment, and there was, as you know, rapid growth of the tumor. But that's been completely arrested now. The current x-rays are absolutely stable. There's no evidence of any growth of any lesions. So that's good news. Now, we want to see these tumors go away. But sometimes that takes time. Cancer patients deserve optimistic doctors, so I'm optimistic. For now, patients like Ezi Pineda remain the exception. But doctors Rosenberg and Curran are hopeful and continue to explore the boundaries of this new frontier, one previously incurable patient at a time. So you're lying in bed at night. What's going through your head? That the good thing is that I'm still alive, that I could live a normal life again, that I'll be all better and probably more stronger than I have been before. So this is the main entrance. Coming up, cancer clusters. A multitude of potential advances are on the horizon in the field of cancer research, and Susan Spencer will be sampling some of them through the course of the morning. Behold, if you dare, the Israeli death stalker scorpion. Its sting is excruciating. Its venom can kill. Not much here to love unless you're Dr. Jim Olson. This sounds terrifying. It's actually beautiful. Beautiful because the Death Stalker's venom may revolutionize how cancer surgery is done. Dr. Olson is a brain cancer physician and researcher at Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle, Washington. We were inspired by a 16-year-old girl who had a brain tumor. After 12 hours of surgery, the surgeons left behind a big piece. And we decided that day to find a way to make the cancer light up so that surgeons could see it while they're operating. The key is the scorpion venom, synthetically reproduced minus the poison. When injected into a patient's bloodstream, it sticks to cancer cells, but not to normal cells. Combine that sticky molecule with fluorescent dye, and you've got what Olson calls tumor paint. 
What problem does tumor paint solve? Sometimes it's really hard for a surgeon to tell what is cancer and what is normal. And in the brain, you can't take out a big chunk of normal just to make sure you got the cancers. And tumor paint distinguishes clearly the difference between brain cancer and normal brain in all of our experiments that we've done so far. Check out this image of a cancerous tumor. Tell me, did they get enough margin here? I, I couldn't where, even tell where, you where where's the, the tumor. Where is the tumor there? Well, but inject tumor paint, problem. and there's no mistaking it. The tumor lights up. This is definitive. I can see why you're excited about this. I'm thrilled about this. You're sort of turning nature upside down, right? That's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> Sounds a lot like science fiction, but Olson says it could be an FDA-approved reality as soon as 2019. Mm -hmm. I think this will potentially be the biggest improvement in cancer surgery maybe in 50 years. God bless the Israeli death stalker scorpion, exactly, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, and God bless our patients because, you know, they're the ones that motivate us to do this. What does it mean when a rare cancer strikes several people in the same area? Is it a case of cause and effect? Anna Werner takes a closer look at cancer clusters. Do you think, from what you know now, that the contamination is moving? We know it's moving. Dr. Thomas Sherman is on the hunt for a killer. Here's where the landfill is, where this arrow is. He's heading a task force investigating why several children in the seacoast region of New Hampshire developed a rare cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma, the cancer that took the life of Paul Thomas's 14-year-old son, Sam. It's something missing in your life, and it, it'll always be there. And Paul and his wife, Lynn, say more than two years after Sam's death, questions persist. In your head, you're like, why are there three cases that you can go off at the top of your head in the seacoast area? Why? New Hampshire says it's a cancer cluster, which the Centers for Disease Control defines as a greater than expected number of cancer cases that occurs within a group of people in a geographic area over a period of time. And while that definition may be black and white, it turns out that almost everything else is anything but. State health departments get an average of 1,000 reports of alleged clusters every year. But historically, only a handful are ultimately recognized as true residential cancer clusters. One of those is the 1980s case of Woburn, Massachusetts, a story told by the book and movie A Civil Action. More than 20 cases of leukemia in children were linked to chemical contamination of the water supply, according to epidemiologist Suzanne Condon, who investigated for the state. How hard is it to figure out if something really is a cancer cluster? I've been asked that before, and my standard response is extraordinarily difficult at best. Tom's River, New Jersey, is another recognized case. But some other notorious incidents, often thought to be cancer clusters, were not. That includes the California events depicted in the movie Aaron Brockovich. Federal officials toured a section of Niagara Falls, New York today, investigating the effects on residents of poisonous chemicals. And the infamous Love Canal case in upstate New York. Investigators have to consider several factors, including how often the cancer occurred, how long it took for it to develop, whether genetics might play a role, and one more thing, chance. It seems like people want to say, it just can't be a coincidence. 
I think people have a, a hard time understanding that sometimes there are random patterns of disease and things can happen because of chance. So when it comes to the seacoast cancer cluster? I think they have an incredible challenge before them. So this is the main entrance. So far, Dr. Sherman and others are focusing their questions on this old closed landfill, where they say the military and others dump toxic wastes. New Hampshire officials say they have found chemicals used to make commercial products in some wells near the landfill. But they say there's no proof they are linked to the suspected seacoast cancer cluster. So every time we find something, it generates a bunch more questions. And those responsible for the landfill deny there's any connection. But the Thomases still hope for an answer, one that might help save someone else's child. These rare cancers are out there, and I really think that that has to be looked at um, so that Sam's death is not in vain. I love my body. Still to come. My body is good enough. Going flat. And later. My personal life was kind of in turmoil, and the last thing I wanted to do was go have a mammogram, but I did. Singer Cheryl Crow, cancer survivor. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For women who've had mastectomies, what to do next is increasingly a matter of choice. And what some women are choosing to do may surprise you. Erin Moriarty of 48 Hours takes what we caution you is a candid look. My name is Debbie Bowers. Um, I live in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2014, and I had a double mastectomy. Cancer is not just a killer. It's a thief. My name is Rebecca Pine. I was diagnosed in 2009 with breast cancer, and I've had a double mastectomy. Each of these women, ranging in age from 34 to 51, have lost breasts to cancer. Yes, it's a loss. It's certainly a loss. And you, and you learn to deal with it in whatever way you can. And it's how these women chose to deal with their loss that is sparking conversation. Fair warning, some of these images are graphic. They call it going flat. Instead of replacing their curves with surgical implants, these women are embracing their scars, even bearing them publicly. I never saw anybody like me. I never heard about anybody like me. I was like, where are you people? Like, I don't get it. Where, like, I, I've never met a flat person before, and where are you? That was how Melanie Testa felt six years ago when she chose not to have reconstructive surgery or to wear removable breast forms. For me, I just don't want to present two bodies. I don't right. want this to walk out of my home yeah. with a breasted body and then return to my home and remove my breasts and then have a flat body. I didn't choose to go flat. It chose me. That's how I look at it. Marianne Duquette Quozo says that when she was diagnosed with breast cancer... Oh, I wanted breasts. I wanted what I had. I was very... She went from breast surgeon to plastic surgeon the same day. They did a beautiful job, and I was very happy with them. 
But Marianne, one of the estimated 20%, according to doctors who suffer side effects, had infection after infection. It was just, let's get them out. It's kind of a myth. You know, they're going to pop them in, it's going to be fine, they'll be great. It's a myth. Another myth, they say, is that reconstructive breasts will feel just like the real thing. They'll feel like regular breasts to somebody else who's touching them, not to, to a you, to a man perhaps, or to whoever. There's, there's, they don't feel like real breasts. Yeah, there's no feeling, there's no nipple, there's no sensation. On the other hand, Samantha West says after going flat, she gains sensation. In terms of sexuality, scars are, are very tender things, and there's, there's feeling in my chest, and it's still an erogenous zone, um, which doesn't happen with implants. It's this foreign thing. When you just have a scar there, though, when you take a shower, when you look in the mirror, isn't that a continual reminder that you had cancer? Well, yeah, of course it is. It's the map of, of who we are, and, and I don't want to forget what I've done and what I've been through. Still, more than half of female breast cancer patients, nearly 60% who are offered breast reconstruction, take it. I think that for us as surgeons, we feel that if we're going to take a body part off, that we should then replace it with something that looks just as good. Dr. Deborah Axelrod is a surgeon and the director of clinical breast services at New York University's Perlmutter Cancer Center. She says reconstructive surgeries have greatly improved, and yet she agrees that looking good can have some unexpected drawbacks. You know, if you're a stomach sleeper and you have an implant, it's like sleeping on a Frisbee sometimes. Dr. Axelrod now regularly discusses the option of going flat with her patients. Do you think still the majority of women will choose reconstruction rather than going flat? I do, because it's the image of our bodies. We want to be whole. Beauty is, is something in, in, in the mind and in the heart. These women hope to change that perception. You know, we're just as feminine, we're just as much women as we were beforehand. There is a growing awareness and acceptance of going flat, they say. This ad campaign for a national gym, a recent fashion show, and websites that offer stories, selfies, and a sisterhood. What it's done for all of us, we can't even express. You're, you're emotional. Why? Tell me what. Yeah, but tell me. I want to know. It was about the friendships. Yeah. That we've made. It's been. We've made incredible friendships. Friendships that have helped each woman accept what they have lost and also what they've gained. I love my body. I love my body more than I ever have before. I see the beauty, I see the strength. I see the strength of my conviction. I am not doing that to my body. My body is good enough. So how did you hear about this trial? Ahead, truly man's best friend. You okay? You okay? You're okay, I know you're my girl. Over here, Zoe. Come on, let's go back over here. There you go. Wanna take a walk? Wanna take a walk? There you go. <laughs> Meet Zoe. So she's eight years old, full of heart, and these days does pretty well on only three legs. This has not slowed you down. Uh-uh. 
Doctors had to amputate one of Zoe's front legs last fall when she was diagnosed with life-threatening bone cancer. Dogs get cancer. It's the most common reason for a dog to die. Today, Zoe and fellow Great Dane, Murphy, are part of a new study which may help people as much as their dogs. It's the pet project of veterinarian Cheryl London, a researcher at Tufts Medical Center, and Dr. Katherine Janeway at Dana-Farber Boston Children's Cancer Center. We are trying to understand cancers in dogs and develop new treatments and then apply those to humans. The mutations really cluster. At the this growing field is called comparative oncology. Veterinarians teaming up with cancer doctors to find a cure. It puts the whole idea of dog being man's best friend in a completely new light. Nobody would think of them as a volunteers in a clinical trial of a new drug that could someday save your life. And may save theirs. Right. Big rest. <gasps> Oncologist Janeway treats the same type of bone cancer in children that London treats in dogs, osteosarcoma. It's been three or four decades since we've had a new approach in osteosarcoma that's worked. How is this any better than using the traditional model of the mouse in the lab? Mice don't have an immune history like you and I do because they're kept in cages and they're isolated. Dogs get exposed to many different antigens. They get exposed to a lot more. <laughs> yeah. So on the left is a picture of a human leg bone. And osteosarcoma in kids and dogs is astonishingly similar. This is the dog here and it looks almost exactly the same. It sure does. And the ultimate goal here? Very promising new drugs for osteosarcoma. With any luck, a new drug might even come in Zoe's lifetime. If not, well, it'll still have her paw prints all over it. So you just want to help, right, Zoe? You're just trying to help. <laughs>Thanks to ongoing research, their ranks are growing by the day. Tracy Smith has a progress report. I, I, I need to sit right here. Okay. When we first met Edie Gilger in 2013, she seemed like your typical healthy four-year-old. What are you doing first? Ooh, what's that? It's a stethoscope. You'd never know she'd just been to Helen back. There we go. Wait, Baba. At six months old, Edie was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, cancer of the nerve tissue, with tumors in her spine and belly that were growing out of control. Chemo and surgery weren't working, so doctors threw a Hail Mary pass and gave her an experimental drug that turned off the specific gene in her body that was making her cancer grow. She says it tasted awful, but in less than a month, her cancer was totally gone. Today, at home in South Carolina, Edie's almost eight and still cancer-free. Parents Nick and Emily are, of course, over the moon. How much medicine is she on? She is not on anything right now. Nothing? Nothing. The good news is that a little girl survived pediatric cancer. Daddy. Daddy. The better news is that it's happening more often. 
Are we beating childhood cancer? We're making advances in certain childhood cancers that we hadn't envisioned five years ago. Dr. Peter Adamson at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia heads up the nationwide Children's Oncology Group, and he says there's good reason for hope. So let's start with the most common childhood cancer, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL. So in the 1960s, a child with ALL had a less than 10% chance of being cured. The same child born today has close to a 90% chance of being cured. So that's dramatic progress in a relatively short span of history. If there's a downside to saving children's lives, it's that most young cancer survivors are in for problems down the road. So a kid survives but still has consequences for the rest of his or her life? That's right. We have children who, as teenagers, require hip replacements because of our treatment. Then there are a number of children who, by the time they're in their 20s, early 30s, experience heart failure. And here's the real zinger. Since more adults get cancer than kids, there's less government research money for childhood cancer cures. Far less. The estimate from the National Cancer Institute is about 4% of their budget goes to studying childhood cancer. Why is that so small? There are some who believe that we solved the childhood cancer problem. We haven't. We're curing children today that 10 years ago we knew we couldn't cure. And that only comes through research. Thank you. Have a good day. So a large chunk of pediatric research money comes from private charities. One of the biggest was started by a young cancer patient, Alex Scott, who raised research money by selling lemonade on her front lawn. Alex died in 2004, but her foundation has attracted thousands of volunteers, this reporter included, and raised more than $100 million to bankroll new treatments, like the one that saved Edie Gilger's life. The people at Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance, who were already big contributors to childhood cancer research, were apparently moved by Edie's story. Look at this. They even built a float in her honor for this year's Rose Parade in Pasadena. A giant floral sculpture of a blonde former cancer patient just being a little girl again. How do you feel about all this? Very lucky that they made that medicine because if they didn't make that medicine, I would be in heaven. <laughs> and that's something her parents thank heaven for every day. Edie I had literally just been rushed to the ICU and I left the hospital that afternoon. And I looked in the rear view and I saw Edie's car seat empty. And I remembered that there are people that leave the hospital and they don't get to, you know, put their child in that car seat ever again. When we left the hospital, she came with us. She left with us. You know, it's a, that's a big, big thing. Diagnosed with neuroblastoma at just six months old. And thanks in part to support from Northwest. Broccoli, kale. Ahead. Cabbage. Does diet the, make a difference? Uh, very healthy green vegetables. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. We've got some food for thought now about diet and cancer from Martha Teichner. What we're going to do today is a stuffed zucchini with orzo risotto. 
Chef Eric Levine's eureka moment about healthy food came with his fifth cancer. It's a numbers game. Yes, he's beaten cancer five times. Ostrich. That moment came on the best and worst day of his life. Hours after chemotherapy and radiation, barely able even to stand up, he competed on the Food Network show, Chopped. In the middle of it, I had that like moment of clarity where I thought, you know what, I could win this competition and I could beat cancer. So Chef Eric, you are the Chopped champion. He did win, but his doctor told him, change the way you eat or die. So far, he's lost 65 pounds. The relationship of food to health and wellness, it's massive. I didn't get it. Now he wants everybody to get it. He sneaks healthy dishes like this stuffed acorn squash onto the menu at his New Jersey restaurant. When things are jammed down your throat, people resist. I definitely will make this at home. All of these things can work for you. What okay. cancer patients eat matters. You prepare meals on days when you're feeling well. Mary Eve Brown is an oncology dietitian at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. It's been reported that two out of three people when they show up at that very first oncology appointment for treatment are already suffering nutritionally, either undernourished or malnourished. So he had about a quarter of a cup of chicken noodle soup. How did that go? Terrible. Terrible. Because he was so undernourished, Jack Applefeld's chemotherapy session had to be canceled. Any time we hold treatment, that has impact on survival. That's how powerful nutrition is during your cancer treatment. So, is there evidence that food can actually cause cancer? There's a relationship between high-fat meats and certain types of gut cancers. There's even a bigger body of evidence about obesity in cancer, female cancers, pancreas cancer. And what I like to say, Martha, is eat the rainbow. We want to eat a variety of colorful vegetables and fruits. This is the power of prevention. Dr. Margaret Cuomo has produced a documentary and a companion book, both called A World Without Cancer. We took a spin around her local supermarket on Long Island. The antioxidants and anti-inflammatory qualities of the vegetables and fruits we're seeing here today are those elements that are going to help us reduce the risk for cancer, diabetes, and other diseases. So says Cuomo, but there is some debate about the role of specific foods in cancer prevention, even organics. Still, she's a believer and says consider organic, but if you gasp at the price. Buy as much as you can afford. It's important that you eat the vegetable. That's the important thing. So if you cannot get them organic, you're going to eat the vegetables regardless. And here's something you may not have thought about. We want to keep to the periphery of a supermarket because the healthier foods are going to be located there. Cuomo says, fill your cart with fruits and veggies, like tomatoes, peppers, oranges. Broccoli, kale, collards. And she says, try green tea. Green tea is known to have catechins and that has a powerful anti-cancer effect. We have some beans, we have our... And what does all that look like on your dinner plate? You want two-thirds of that plate to be consisting of vegetables, whole grains, and fruits, with one-third of it protein. That protein can be a bean, can be black beans, chickpeas, lentils, 
It can be a lean protein like fish or poultry. And what do you say to people who say, I hate all that stuff? Learn to like it. <laughs> it's good <laughs> for you. <laughs> Still to come, Cheryl Crow. My gynecologist called and said, there is no six months. You don't wait. Get a second opinion. Let's get a needle biopsy. And it turned out it was invasive. And in the warm, wet tongues and the cool fur of dogs. The video that's no game. Beyond Cancer, a special edition of Sunday Morning. Here again is Dr. John LaPook. Topping the charts with hit songs is just one side of Cheryl Crow. Spreading her hard-won knowledge about early cancer detection is another. She talks about that and more with Rita Braver. This is where we're used to seeing Cheryl Crow. On stage with a guitar in her hands. But she says she's equally at home here. Come right this way. I'm going to bring you into the exam room. Demonstrating how she gets an annual mammogram or breast x-ray. Um, we're going to do a top to bottom view and then we're going to be turning the machine and doing a side view. A subject that was once only whispered about. Just going to bring the machine up here. Women just didn't speak about their breasts. It was so taboo. Uh, obviously we live in a different day and age and I feel like I'm in a kind of a rarefied position and that I have a very large fan base of women and those women they've got teenage girls now and it's just great to at least stay on top of your own health and she makes no bones about being a paid spokesperson for Hologic which makes 3D imaging machines for mammograms it can be the difference between a real harsh treatment or something that's early and is ultimately a cure Crowe has reason to understand the importance of early detection. In 2006, you discovered that you had breast cancer. How did you even learn that you had it? I had a routine mammogram. It was a very inopportune time. It was right before the Grammys. Um, my personal life was kind of in turmoil, and the last thing I wanted to do was go have a mammogram, but I did. And the result was come back in six months, that we've seen something that's kind of suspect, but let's, let's keep an eye on it. And my gynecologist called and said, there is no six months. You don't wait. You, do, you know, let's go and get a second opinion. Let's get a needle biopsy, and it turned out it was invasive. Can you remember the emotions that went through your mind? You're young and suddenly they're telling you you've got breast cancer? Yeah, I do. You know, it's like one of those scenes in a movie where all of a sudden it's like everything's swirling. And she said right off the bat, you're not going to die. This is very early. We'll do a lumpectomy and radiation, and you'll, be, you'll get on with your life. It was a life that Cheryl Crow had worked hard to build. Raised in Kennett, Missouri, she worked as a grade school music teacher after college. But on the side... She had a gig singing commercial jingles. In and out, in and out, that's what a hamburger's all about. <laughs> all the greats. <laughs> but in 1986, she decided to try her luck in L.A. It took you a while. Nobody was beating down your door yeah. and saying, please, honey, come make us some music. Yeah, every label said we don't know what to do with, you know, a blue-eyed kind of country soul singer. I was pretty much turned down by everybody. 
1993, she finally broke through. She had a string of hits, eventually racking up nine Grammy Awards. Then in 2006, at age 44, a double whammy. Not only cancer, but the end of her engagement to cyclist Lance Armstrong. The whole saga unfolding publicly. You can work so long and have big selling records, but when your life falls apart, you become like an A celebrity. So suddenly there was a convergence of people being interested in my private life, and that for me was such an intrusion. She had 33 radiation treatments. Every morning I had the opportunity to just lay there with my arm above my head and reassess my life. I mean, yeah, and when she is. got a clean bill of health, she decided to take her mom's advice and not wait for marriage to have children. She just said, adopt, get a surrogate. It, your life doesn't have to look like the life you were born into. And that's what I did. I just thought, you know what? Life's so short. She dotes on six-year-old uh, Levi and his big brother, nine-year-old Wyatt. And action. Beautiful. But she's also found time to launch a new line of clothing. I love when you look off and find that lens. Which she'll soon pedal on HSN. All right, so maybe the sleeves need to be slendered. Working from her converted barn in Nashville, she's developing pieces based on her all-American style. It's a great way to get clothes out to people who can't afford the $350 jeans, which, you know, I, I go to my hometown all the time, and that is basically middle America. Those are the people who are more economically strapped. That's who you want these clothes to appeal to? I think that's kind of who buy my records. And yes, she's also got a new record coming next month called Be Myself. The first single, which she recently performed at L.A.'s famed Troubadour, is called Halfway There. She says the song is about urging people to listen to each other in today's vitriolic political climate. Doesn't matter if you're this person and I'm that person, don't we all want the same thing at the end of the day? But along with the song she sings, Crow says she'll continue to talk, urging women to get an annual mammogram. I was healthy. I didn't have any family history. The technology is getting better and better. So at a certain age, take it into your own hands to make sure that you're your advocate. I look at the opportunity as more of a gift than a responsibility. It's worth being said. Up next, a video game for Joel. A game for Joel is a different sort of video game. It's one family's heartfelt tribute to a lost son. And a reminder, Ben Tracy tells us, of how far the fight against cancer has yet to go. Was she with someone else or was it just her and her daughter? Okay, so if you said they moved... It's homework time in the Green household just outside of Denver. And Ryan and Amy Green's kitchen table 
is definitely full. Right, do you want to cut these? What do you want to do? Okay, just a minute. So wait, wait, wait. Let me finish this. But when you look closely at the pictures on their refrigerator, you realize it's not nearly as full as it should be. I know people sometimes mm -hmm. will not want to bring him up because they don't want to make us sad, but a lot of ways we'd rather be sad remembering him than, than have a day pass where we don't think about him. Their son, Joel, was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2010. He was just one year old. The tumors left him partially blind and unable to speak. But at first, the treatment was working. Like they had told us that he had four months to live, and we were a year and a half past that date. And it just felt like our prayers were being answered, and we were seeing this miracle, and we thought, like, oh, we've got we've to tell people. What does Joel love? Wawa. In cups, bathtubs, and the warm, wet tongues and the cool fur of Das. Ryan is a video game developer, so he and his team created a different sort of game. They called it That Dragon Cancer. Hey, do you want to rock? Okay, let's rock. There we go. The impressionistic game chronicles Joel's battle with cancer and the emotional ups and downs of caring for him. Basically, he thinks we should move forward with the radiation, and it, it kind of freaks me out, but it could be another miracle. But it's really more about contemplation than competition. While you can make Joel laugh and comfort him... I'm sorry, guys. It's not good. It is often painfully hard to play. You are there when the Greens learn Joel's tumors have returned. Any recurrence means the chemotherapy has failed. And there are times when you can't stop him from crying, like when he is dehydrated and inconsolable after another round of chemotherapy. The first scene that we ever created for the game was, um, was a retelling of a night that I spent in the hospital with Joel. And it was one of um, the hardest nights of my life. Um, as a father being unable to do the very thing that I prided myself on, right? Which is bring comfort to my children. It's so late, Joel. Lay down. I can't hold you. I can't make you feel better. You know, we both keep using the word game. Mm -hmm. It just seems like such an odd term. I would say, no, it's not a game, but there are games in it. And it's not about fun, but there are moments when you have fun. And uh, life is a mixture of the, the, the sorrowful and the joyful and, and the, you know, weeping and, and playing and praying. And so I hope that it's a reflection of our life, you know, in the form of a video game. Joel lived beyond all expectations, yet the miracle story these parents thought they were telling ended in 2015. He was five. And when he died, the game became our focus. In our grief and in missing him, like we could all as a family kind of rally around finishing the game for him. We went from um, caring for Joel to making everybody care about Joel. <laughs> that dragon cancer became a phenomenon in the gaming community. I think there's a very intense drive as parents to want your children to have some impact on the world. And when you have a child that dies, that's one of the things that you mourn maybe the most is that all of the dreams you had for them um, don't happen. 
in creating the game, I think a lot of it was a desire to make sure that Joel's life impacted the world. In the final scene of the game, Joel is surrounded by all of the things he loves. Puppies, bubbles, and pancakes. He can finally see and speak. I love bubbles. Look, I can touch one. He was this fun, delightful boy. And so the idea that whatever heaven looks like and whatever he is experiencing there, that he would be full of delight makes sense to us. The Hippocratic Oath advises doctors to first do no harm. Words many clinicians today are taking to heart when it comes to decisions about cancer screening and treatment. Here's Barry Peterson. This is a moment yes. when you changed a person's life. When Absolutely. Lisa Mann was readying for a double mastectomy when she consulted Dr. Laura Esserman and heard two critical words. Well, she said, first of all, it's highly treatable. Sometimes doing less is just as important as doing more. For years, the conventional wisdom has been to treat any cancer aggressively. But Dr. Esserman, a breast cancer surgeon and oncologist at the University of California, San Francisco, is part of a new medical movement, urging patients to hit the pause, not the panic button, when they get a breast cancer diagnosis. We're assaulted by this, find it first, get it out, that's how you live. Okay, but we, we really need to change that whole framework. So people say, oh, I can find cancer when it's, the, when it's one cell. I said, please, don't. Because we, we don't need to know that, because the body may take care of it. There's a lot of things that the body takes care of. Virtually no one questions the value of screening to find cancers, but the debate about when or if to treat those cancers is getting louder. When we initially started to screen for breast cancer, we were looking for small, invasive cancers with the idea that if only we could find them early, we would really dramatically reduce the chance of dying of breast cancer. The problem is the people who have the very low risk conditions don't need the treatment. And by over-treating them, you're not improving people's uh, chance of survival. A group of medical researchers concluded that of every 2,000 women screened, one will avoid dying of breast cancer, but 10 women will be treated unnecessarily. Dartmouth professor Dr. H. Gilbert Welch tracks cancer survival rates as screening has improved. And ironically, the more overdiagnosis that a screening uh, test does, the more popular it becomes because there's more people who feel they are, quote, survivors because of screening, although it happens to be a cancer that was never going to bother them. They'll never know that. He says for thyroid cancer, screening sent the number of new cases skyrocketing, but the death rate remains virtually unchanged. The same was true for melanoma. And for prostate cancer, screening peaked in the 1990s, but the death rate barely changed. We're moving much more towards the observation. Dr. Ian Thompson is an oncologist and president of the Christus Santa Rosa Hospital in San Antonio. In the end, if I'm the patient sitting across from you, the thing that you would have the hard time persuading me is it's okay to live with cancer in your body. Mm -hmm. 
Is it okay? Well, most of us have cancer in our body, so that's the first thing. In fact, some prostate cancers are so slow-growing that a man will likely die of other causes. And aggressive treatments carry their own dangers. A biopsy risks infection, and surgery even worse. Uh, it can lead to sexual dysfunction. So um, a man could become impotent afterwards. Uh, uh, medications may not work for the potency, and that can affect marital relationships. And then radiation and surgery can affect urinary functions. It's the unintended consequence of a strange new frontier. More ways to find cancer, but increasing concern that some of those cancers are not dangerous. A message over which patients and doctors can connect. I think the new role for the physicians is to be a coach and to really try and help explain all this complicated data and to help people make a choice that's right for them. We take a breath. Next. I'm Dr. John LaPook. Please join Jane Pauley here again next Sunday morning. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.